0: Hello and welcome to Tully's Take on History. I'm Dr. Stuart Tully. And today we're going to be talking about Southern honor culture and dueling. Today I'm going to be talking about one of the most violent, yet somehow underreported incidents in American history. I'm going to start by telling you about the incident itself before going back to give it some context. My hope is that by examining the social elements surrounding the violent act, you can better understand it. But first, let's start with the facts. On the afternoon of May 22nd, 1855, Preston Brooks, the U.S. representative for the state of South Carolina, walked onto the Senate floor. The Senate was wrapping up his session, and although it was an unheard of for a representative to go to the other body, it was still a bit unusual that Brooks was there for seemingly no reason. As senators started to leave for their offices and the crowd dispersed from the gallery, Brooks started heading towards Senator Charles Sumner from Massachusetts. The two men did not have a long history with each other, But Sumner had given a speech two days prior which disparaged Brooks' cousin, Andrew Butler, who was a senator himself from South Carolina. In the speech, which was ostensibly about whether or not slavery should be allowed in the Kansas territory, Sumner had made comments which had linked Butler's interest in slavery with sexuality, as well as mocks Butler's slurred speech, which had occurred as a result of a recent stroke. After exchanging words with Sumner, and checking to make sure no ladies were around, Brooks pulled out his cane, which had a head head made out of gold, and beat Sumner in the head for around a solid minute. The force of Brooks's blows broke the cane into pieces, and Brooks left the pieces on the Senate floor, where they were covered in Sumner's blood. After being restrained by other congressmen, Brooks ceased his assault and left the Senate of his own accord. I first learned about the story whenever I was in 7th grade. At the time, my teacher presented it as a, a silly little incident um, in U.S. history. Something to be made light of in the lead-up to the Civil War. A funny anecdote of sorts. A silly thing to say that it seemed partisan politics were getting bad. But I, the more I learned about this incident, the less lighthearted I became. If nothing else, Sumner almost died from this attack. It took him years to recover. This was not an isolated incident in an otherwise civil and nonviolent country. This incident was not an outlier to the United States. Rather, this was the crystallization of numerous forces which caused not only a shocking act of violence on the hallowed halls of the U.S. Senate, but would cause the most violent war in U.S. history. This action was not just partisan bickering, but rather should serve as a reminder to the country of how words and attitudes can ultimately damage us as a whole. Likewise, how the pursuit of protecting one's ego can eventually cause the ruin of another. Now that the facts are out of the way, let me give you a lot of context. And I'm going to start with a single word honor. Along with liberty, this was a guiding principle behind the society of colonial period and early republic. It does not have a simple, single definition and has multiple different facets and dimensions. Oftentimes, it can be contradictory. Or at least lead to actions which were seemingly counterintuitive. And honor was exceedingly important for Southerners. As Mississippi Governor Albert Gallant Brown put it during this time period, the quote, one standard of social merit was integrity and unsullied reputation, end quote. Southerners were obsessed with honor. Personal differences were settled by degrees of honor. One's actions were not nearly as vital as one's reputation. It was a martial value. It embodied prowess, valor, and accomplishments in battle. It was unwritten, because it existed beyond the written word and law. The manner in which one was viewed by one's peers dominated even one's wealth. Without honor, Southerners were considered debased, without social standing or group identity. To lose one's dignity was to lose one's life. Now, where did this all come from? Honestly, it's murky. There is evidence that this obsession had been somewhat prevalent in Europe before colonization, but it really came into vogue with the new world. Like, everyone became obsessed with honor. So much obsessed that even the British were taken aback whenever they visited their former colony. For instance, in the 1840s, a British visitor commented that the code of honor was, quote, so exceedingly strict that it was hard not to offend Virginians, since even minor offenses had, quote, colossal dimensions, even a coolness between parties is dangerous as having a fatal tendency to speedily ripen into a deadly feud, end quote. When he asked the Virginian about this obsession, the Virginian replied that honorable maintained, quote, that reputation for courage, manliness, and honor, which wins the respect of friends, enforces that of one and its enemies, and above all, secures the self-respect without which no high-toned man can live or cares to live. It's pretty heavy stuff. Now, who had honor? Well, it was a sliding scale as you went up. For those of the lowest rank in society, they were seen to have the lowest amount of honor. Slaves, for instance, had no honor within antebellum society. They had no physical freedom, no ability to defend themselves and their women, and were unable to assert an individual reputation. If a slave were to act in a debased or dishonorable manner, it wasn't an offense. The planetary elite didn't expect much of the slaves, and if they acted in a dishonorable fashion, it was just proof of their low status. Poor whites had a bit more honor, and we'll talk a bit later about how it manifested. Women were not seen to have honor, since it was a masculine virtue, but their status and purity, if you will, could be a major reflection of their fathers, brothers, and husbands. Now, if you don't know, Virginia, in particular, was dominated by white, slave-holding males. And here you have the highest stage of honor in that time period. They were the most prone to take offense at the slightest insults and demand satisfaction through dueling and the like. Yes, I will be talking about dueling in length. Don't worry, I'll get there. And this whole honor system is skewed in their favor. It's a system loaded with hypocrisy and double standards. For instance, uh, to take from some classic old school rap, let's talk about sex, shall we? In this time period, it was widely expected for an honorable young man to engage in extensive premarital relations. The expectation was that at marriage between an honorable young man and young woman, The woman would be a virgin, but the man would not. Now the whole notion of honor comes into play with whom the man chooses to have the premarital sex. If it's a prostitute or one of his slaves, that's no big deal, not even worth mentioning. A person of honor could not debase their standing by having sex with such people because prostitutes and slaves were seen to have no honor. Now, if it's a slave owned by somebody else, that might raise a few eyebrows, and there would probably be an intense backroom conversation where the slave owner would either sell the slave or demand payment for the exchange, but if the young man had relations with a woman of standing, or even his future wife, if she was of honorable birth, it was potentially scandalous. That was the sort of stuff duels were fought over. I should also mention that marriage is one of the few ways where a man could rise in social status to become a man of honor. Getting rich helped, to be sure, but finding a wife of high standing was the main way that social elevation occurred. An example of this is James Henry Hammond, who was born in the bad part of the South Carolina backcountry. For the longest time, Eastern Carolina, around Charleston, that was considered the low country, that was old money. However, Western South Carolina, that's the upcountry, sorry, yes, upcountry, the backcountry, they're considered new rich social climbers. Now, James Hammond was not born of very much means. He goes to college. After college, he begins to aggressively pursue the daughter of a Charleston merchant who's very rich. Uh, Her name is Catherine Fitzsimmons. Her family does not approve of this match, not in the slightest. But Hammond was very persistent, and she ultimately demanded that her family approve the marriage. Now, I've got got to say for a second, this is one of those times that often in history we talk about what sense of agency, (coughs) excuse me, that women have in this time period. And you see with Catherine Fitzsimmons, she is a woman of means. And she is able, despite the heavy opposition of her parents, and especially her father, to demand marriage to James Hammond. This is not unusual. Um, If I were to talk about U.S. presidents, for instance, George Washington marries somebody very much higher than him. Uh, Martha Washington was one of the richest landowners around in Virginia. That's how George Washington gets really rich. Uh, Abe Lincoln, too. Abe Lincoln marries Mary Todd, who is also of a much higher status than he is. But when Hammond gets the hand of Catherine Fitzsimmons, her family has to give him a dowry. That is the expectation. When you marry a woman, the woman's family is expected to give you money or some sort of property or some sort of financial compensation for taking you on as their estate. And Catherine Fitzsimmons had a very rich dowry. As part of this dowry, Hammond receives a 7,500-acre silver bluff plantation on the Savannah River. And along with this property comes 148 slaves. Now, if we're just talking about the value of the land itself and the slaves, we're not talking about the plants, we're not talking about the farm implements, we're not even talking about the house itself. But if we're just talking about 7,500 acres and 150 slaves, give or take, it's 148, Adjusted for inflation, and that's assuming the average acre of farmland costs about three thousand dollars. I know I'm lowballing that number, and the average price of a slave, adjusted for inflation, around this time period, is about forty thousand dollars for a slave. That dowry is about twenty-two million dollars in real estate and land, and about six million dollars in slaves. So he's just made about thirty million dollars through this marriage. Now, I bet some of y'all out there is like, wow, I would marry somebody if they paid off my credit card bill or got rid of my student loans, let alone $30 million. So you can see this was very, very important for Hammond to do. That's how he gets his status. This one marriage makes Hammond a man of honor and catapults him into South Carolina society. In 1834, he was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives, which he didn't really care for too much, and was later governor of that state. Yet although he rose due to honor, his fault was also due to honor, and his fall was also honor. In 1843, Wade Hampton, who was actually the brother-in-law of Hammond's wife, so Hampton and Hammond, Hampton accuses Hammond of having improper relations with his nieces, uh, basically Hampton's children, which Hammond actually never denies. In fact, if you look at Hammond's diary, he pretty much admits, yeah, I did all sorts of stuff with my nieces. They were so attractive, which is just icky. And this is actually seen as icky in this time period, especially in South Carolina Honorable Society. He leaves the governorship in disgrace, and he actually returns... No, I'm going to wait to tell you when he returns. But I bet you're wondering, Tully, just get to dueling. Yes, dueling was something that pretty much was always against the law, but was accepted in American society. It has a whole host of rules and rituals that go along with it. Now, right now, you're singing Hamilton to yourself. You're singing those Ten Duel Commandments. And I know you know those. I know those. So I'm going to skip the basics. There are three other rules that I want to highlight which aren't typically mentioned, though. The first, only social equals dueled, and by which I mean rich and elite people. Poor people have their own rituals, I'll mention in a minute. The second, one could not rise in status through dueling. This was to prevent young, enterprising whippersnappers from challenging everybody and rising through the ranks of society through violence. It was difficult to have social mobility in antebellum society outside of marriage and money, and they don't want to have hotheads dueling themselves into respectability. So you just can't start dueling everybody and, you know, getting status because of that. Third, if someone of a lower social status insulted a person deemed of higher status, the person with higher status could gain satisfaction not through dueling, but beating them. To duel an individual implies equality. Instead, they would beat the living crud out of them in order to ensure that the lower status person learned to keep their mouth shut. Of course, there are all sorts of variations to dueling. For instance, the French of New Orleans typically did not fight to the death, but usually to the blood. And it was actually possible for New Orleanian youths to rise in some status through dueling. Now, these duelers actually looked in disgust at the Americans living in the American quarter of New Orleans for their dueling, because they dueled to the death. They thought it was very uncivilized. I'd also be amiss if I don't mention German dueling societies, which come about a little bit later, where college students demonstrated their bravery by purposely giving each other scars and ritualized duels. They didn't really have winners or losers. It's more about who can get the most scars, make the fanciest out of it. Uh, poor white people in Virginia during this time period have their own variations of dueling. Most notably, brawling and eye-gouging contest. I'm not going to talk too much about these because they are disgusting. If you really want to, you can read these absolutely horrifying accounts from poor Annabelle and Virginias, purposely growing out their fingernails so they could better like rip out and scoop out eyeballs. Uh, one guy even like removed his ring finger as he could better gouge out an eye. Uh, they also have contests where they like rip out each other's testicles and like try to, like, Take people out that way. Uh, this wasn't usually done to the death and usually done for purposes of bravery, not really of honor. In fact, the participants would often display their missing eye sockets, at, it was called the Virginia brand, which is just ugh, brutal. But let's go back. Let's suppose that a poor person or a person of low status insults somebody of high status. As mentioned before, a duel would typically not occur. Let's consider the case of O. Jennings Wise, better known as Obie, who's the son of Virginia Governor Henry Wise. In 1858, when the Richmond Whig newspaper published an editorial critical of his father, Obie walked into the paper's offices and confronted the editor, Robert Ridgway. Obie considered the editor to be his inferior and proceeded to beat Ridgway with his cane. After the assault, Ridgway demanded a duel, but Obie refused to accept because Ridgway was a social inferior who... Obi claimed, quote, Lacked a sense of honor and property recognized by the established usage. Obi was not afraid of duels, considering he fought an eight in the span of less than two years, and was not disgraced for this behavior. In fact, he was celebrated. A less confrontational newspaper wrote that Obi's behavior was, quote, Deemed no absurdity, but a great number of the community, in fact a majority, regarded as natural and manly, invising chivalry of the very highest order, end quote. Obi did not fare as well in the Civil War, where he actually dies about a year into the conflict. I'll also need to mention that educating antebellum youth must have been a nightmare. Uh, For instance, there are absolute horror stories about the children of Planters going off to university, where they regularly skip class, engage in duels, and threaten their professors on a very, very regular basis. In fact, a lot do more than threaten. Uh, The University of Virginia was once a hotbed of conflict between the student body and their professors. The Planner students felt the professors were socially beneath them, and not authority figures. And felt no reservations in assaulting, or even killing, in one case, their professors. I might take some lits for my students, Uh, sometimes you have disrespectful students, but I've never been assaulted, or certainly never been killed by a former student. So in the midst of all this contention, the country was deeply divided over the issue of slavery. Now, they don't know it at the time, but the Civil War was about to erupt over the issue, which the US had been putting off pretty much since 1776. Southerners supported slavery, even though only a minority of the people in the South owned slaves, and these dueling individuals were almost entirely very much in favor of slavery. Now, as my students over the years can attest, high IB seniors, uh, slavery was often linked to concepts of freedom in colonial times. Uh, Side note, read American Freedom, American Slavery by Edmund Morgan. It's a really good one. talks all about this. For many slave owners, the concept of freedom was tied to one's ability to limit the freedom of others. I'm not going to go into great detail about this, but slavery was very much a core concept relating to one's overall identity. Northerners did not tend to favor slavery, but it usually wasn't out of altruism towards African Americans. In fact, a lot of abolition societies, in fact, most abolition societies in this time period don't allow African-Americans to have positions of leadership, and a lot of times they don't really care for them in the rank and file. Free soilers in particular don't like African-Americans in their territories because they view it as economic competition, even if they were not slaves. The idea being that African-Americans would work for less money and the labor would be cheapened. So you have states like Ohio, uh, other Midwest territories that do not allow African-Americans in general. In fact, Oregon has some of the most famous, even though Oregon's barely a territory in this time period. But when Oregon becomes a territory in a state, they have rules that say basically if you're an African-American living in that state, you get flogged once a year. They're trying to keep a white utopia. Now, in 1856, when this whole duel occurs, I'm sorry, this beating occurs between Sumner and Brooks, this is felt most keenly in Kansas. You see, according to the Kansas and Nebraska Act, the issue of slavery in Kansas would be decided by something called popular sovereignty. This was a compromise offered to stop the divisiveness over the slavery issue, which had been battling the country for quite a while. Popular sovereignty allowed for the residents of a state or territory to vote on the legality of slavery. Basically, if the citizens of an area want slavery, they can vote for it. If they don't, they can vote against it. It's very democratic, seems very American. There are some problems here, and you might already be ahead of me here. Number one, uh, supporters of each side would joyfully flock to each state to try to sway the vote by pretty much stuffing the ballot box. And also, they would try to intimidate or beat up or kill the opposition. There is a lot of violence going on in Kansas during this time period. In fact, Kansas gets the nickname Bleeding Kansas. Uh, This is also the first appearance of John Brown, who, if you know anything about pre-Civil War stuff, he's about to become famous much later uh, for his raid on Harper's Ferry. Uh, John Brown is a radical abolitionist, uh, especially for the time period. He is willing to use violence. And most of the country is horrified of the violence in general, particularly those in the East who are seeing what's going on in the West, and they think it's just abhorrent that people are fighting over this. So it's this violence in Kansas that Senator Charles Sumner was speaking about on May 18, 1856, a couple days before the beating. Sumner is from Massachusetts, and he was very much an abolitionist. He is actually a bit unique at the time because he believed that black people slash slaves were indeed equal to white people and had the capacity to be the equal of any other American. In his speech... Sumner placed the blame for all the violence with the authors of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, who were two of his fellow senators, the first being Stephen Douglas of Illinois, who you've definitely heard of, you know, the Lincoln-Douglas debates, that guy, and Andrew Butler of South Carolina. Now, Stephen Douglas was there during the speech. Uh, Butler was not. And in Butler's absence, Sumner really takes his time to tear into Butler. He is brutal on Butler. He basically says it's all with Butler. Butler's got bad morals. Butler is the reason. And the thing is, he's using a lot of sexual imagery here to denounce Butler. I'm going to kind of try to recite part of this speech so you can hear some of this sexuality. He says, quote, "The Senator from South Carolina has read many books on chivalry and believes himself to be a chivalrous knight with sentiments of honor and courage. Of course, he has chosen a mistress to whom he has made his vows, and who, though ugly to others, is always lovely to him, though polluted in the sight of the world, is chaste in his sight. I mean the harlot, slavery. For her, his tongue is always profuse in words. Let her be impeached in character, nor any proposition made to shut her out from the extension of her wantonness. And no extravagance of manner or hard of assertion is then too great for a senator. Basically, he is saying that, yo, Sumner has got sexually ish feelings towards slavery. He might be sleeping with his slaves, which... Like I said, very common practice, but not something you talk about in polite company. He also says that South Carolina ought to be, quote, blotted from existence, and insults Butler further, almost accusing him of treason, by saying that Butler will ultimately, quote, conduct the state of South Carolina out of the Union, and that Butler was, quote, a second Moses come for a second exodus. exodus. Basically, he's saying, South Carolina is going to leave the union and it's going to be Butler who leads them to it. And to be sure, Sumner is not alone in thinking this by any means. Everybody thought there was going to be a split in the union and it's probably going to be South Carolina. South Carolina had been doing this junk for decades of the United States. I mean, the secession crisis, even when Andrew Jackson was president South Carolina is acting although it's about to leave. And guess what? They were absolutely right. South Carolina was the first to leave. Now, after this speech, Stephen Douglas remarked to one of his colleagues that, quote, that damn fool will get himself killed by another damn fool. But as I said earlier, Butler was not in the Senate that day. He actually suffered a stroke a little earlier, and he was not doing well at all. This fact was not lost on Sumner because during the speech, whenever he was mimicking uh, the way that Butler talked, he was like slurring his speech. He was, you know, dragging his foot around to kind of demonstrate the avenues of a, the um, you know, attributes of a stroke. And you know, look, Sumner is really trying to goad Butler. He's really going over beyond. His language is quite far. Summer would probably have meant that he was like, you know, really laying it on Butler, you know, kind of exaggerating these issues. Now, the person who comes to, to Butler's defense was Preston Brooks. Preston Brooks is young. He's only 36 years old in this time period. He's a brand new representative from South Carolina. He's also a veteran of the Mexican War. So he's a new generation. And he's very, very much steeped in dueling and honor culture. He's also Butler's cousin, the exact cousin. I believe they're like first or second cousins once generation removed. Butler is of a much older generation than uh, Brooks's. In his speech, Sumner had insulted the South, slavery, South Carolina, and Butler, who was part of Brooks's family. For somebody steeped in honor culture, this is a type of insult that demands satisfaction. But... Whereas ordinarily they might duel, and I should mention, there are a lot of people in the U.S. Congress and even, you know, vice presidents, Aaron Burr, uh, who have dueled before. Uh, Secretary of States have dueled each other. Like, this, is, this was actually somewhat common. Never legal, but if you're of status and you're considered equals, you do it and you get away with it. But Brooks does not consider Sumner his equal because of the language and the manner of crassness that Sumner used could not be used by a gentleman. Sumner might be a senator, but he has no class in Brooks' eye, and as such, there'd be no honor in dueling such a person. Instead, Brooks would treat Sumner as someone of lower class, and just like Obie did to that newspaper editor, he would get his satisfaction through beating him. Now, remember this. At the time, senators were considered a much higher level than representatives. Senators were elected in this time period by state legislatures. The popular vote for senators does not come until much later. So even to be considered to become a senator, you have to be a man of honor. You have to be somebody that is deemed as of high status within the state of itself. You know, somebody who is chosen by the best of the best. But this first-term representative thinks that he is the superior of a senator. So on May 22nd, Brooks walks up to Sumner alongside Lawrence M. Kett, another South Carolina representative who acts as Sumner's second in this whole affair. And he says the following, Mr. Sumner, I've read your speech twice carefully. It is a libel on South Carolina and Mr. Butler, who was a relative of mine. Now, Sumner probably thinks, wait a really? is it libel if I spoke it? I thought uh, that's slander. No, just kidding. Uh, Sumner actually is rising to his feet to confront this new congressman, and before he can even make it all the way to his feet, Brooks hits him in the head with his cane. Now, this cane has a golden head, and ironically, the cane which Brooks use it was not a decorative cane for Brooks. It was one he needed because when he was a much younger man, he was in a duel and he took a bullet to the hip and that bullet never actually healed and he always had a gait, and he always needed that cane. This assault continues at least for a solid minute and pretty much it only was stopped whenever Brooks's cane broke multiple times. Uh, some congressmen and some senators actually tried to break up the assault earlier, but then Kit took out a pistol and demanded they keep their space So I just want you to imagine for a second, these are all Congress people. These are people who have won elections. These are people that their states have considered to be people of honor and worth and propriety. They are the best of the best, and yet they are acting with such crass violence on the seat of the Capitol. And yet both sides feel very justified here. This is not a beating, okay? I need you to understand that. This is an attempted murder. This could have easily caused the death of Sumner. Because it takes Sumner many years to recover from this. Uh, He almost dies, legitimately almost dies. He has neurological damage. He has all sorts of, uh, I would would call it PTSD, legitimately. It is post-traumatic stress disorder. From what happened to him, he's actually unable to finish his term because of the trauma. He leaves. Uh, he go back. He goes back to Massachusetts. He actually tours around Europe for a while to try to get his mind off stuff. He ultimately would return to the Senate, but he was kind of a broken man. He he's just never the same after this. Brooks is hailed as a hero by the South, and he actually receives multiple canes to replace the one he broke. However, you still violently tried to kill another member of Congress, in fact, a senator. And so Brooks actually has to resign his post. They try to censor him or kick him out. He's unable to get the votes to get him kicked out. But he resigns, he resigns his, his, uh, his House seat and actually is reelected the next year by South Carolina, who, call, who says they are grateful to him for basically holding up the honor of the South. Now he actually dies less than a year later in January of, 1950, of 1857, not nineteen fifty of eighteen fifty seven. Not ninety; he doesn't live hundred years. He dies in early January of eighteen fifty seven of the croup, um, weird lung condition. Uh, he dies very painfully. They say they said he was like trying to rip his throat so he could breathe. It was not a good way to go. He is actually ironically outlived by his kinsman. Butler lasts about another six months after this. He dies in May of 1857, complications of a stroke. He was not a very healthy man. Now, the person who replaces Butler as senator from South Carolina is none other than, yeah, you got it, James Henry Hammond. Although he was kicked out of the governorship uh, in disgrace because of what he did with his nieces, uh, state legislature actually elects him to the Senate, and he serves until the Civil War when South Carolina is the first to leave the Union, surprising absolutely nobody. Now, hopefully you can understand more about this action. This is one of those times when partisan contention really came to blows. But there's an undercurrent of privilege entitlement which laid the groundwork for such a confrontation. Now as I am recording this podcast, a couple days ago, we we've been having impeachment hearings. And I've been seeing people online, people on social media talk about just the contention of it. Uh, for instance, uh, there was, you know, the, the chairman not recognizing people of the other parties because of a point of order. And it's not really a point of order. You can see they're, they're, they're arguing all these legal but you can tell there's real contention underneath it. And people said, This is the most divided America's ever been. Um, as a historian, I can tell you. This is a pretty divided time in America, but this is definitely not the most divided time in America's history. I mean, say what you want about modern politics. You haven't had an assault on the floor of the Senate. And for that, this is Stuart Tully for Tully's Take on History. Have a great day.